All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Jason Greger Show presented by PlayAlberta.ca. If you gamble, use your game sense. Stay within your limit. Go to gamesense.ab.ca and learn more. Joins us. Staffy, how you doing, man? Oh, fantastic. Thank you for uh, having me on. Now, you, you came in the second year, correct? 81. 81. So they started 79, yeah, in okay. the NHL. Okay, so 81, 82 was your yeah. first year. Uh, yes, and I worked for the uh, Wichita Wind. I started in the minors, for which was the Oilers farm team at the time. Right out of university, right down to Wichita. So how would you get the gig originally? Well, um, I grew up in Banff. Okay. I went to the Glen Sather Holiday Hockey School as a kid. I had a big dream to make it to the <laughs> NHL. I uh, wasn't a great player and a junior. And uh, anyway, I, I decided at one point that I, I needed to get a degree. And I got my degree in athletic training. I got a chance to play for the late, great Claire Drake. Oh, okay. For four years, yeah. Three wow. championships there. Very proud of that. But uh, I handed in my resume uh, when I graduated. And uh, just coincidentally, the timing was right. And the trainer before me, his uh, equipment manager, was uh, Kelly Pruden. He moved on. And... Um, they needed somebody to work for, for in the farm team, so they hired me, and I, I started in the minors. So you went to Wichita. How long were you there? One year. One year, and then, yeah, and then you get called up to the NHL. So yeah. did they expand, or did you replace someone in the NHL? Uh, I replaced uh, the fellow that was there in front of me. They, just, they had a... Disagreement? Yeah, just kind of... <laughs> so I, I got kind of thrown into the fire. I was, you know, I had one-year experience in, in the minors, and then bang. That's just typical Glenn Sather. <laughs> fired me right into that thing wet behind the ears greener and grass but so what was the when you look back and 
because man, we're going to talk about the evolution of of you know just equipment and how your job has evolved over time. But so you come in as a raw rookie, one year of experience in 1981, and that was the year that ends up being the year of the miracle on Manchester, unfortunately for your team. But um, you know, so there's Gretzky. Now he's his third year in the league, and he's a pretty good player. Last I checked, and you got Messier now on the team, and Coffee, and you know. Lots of good guys. What was kind of the, the biggest learning curve for you early on? Well, that year that you're talking about, the uh, L.A. Uh, miracle, I was in the minors that year. So I watched oh, okay. from afar. I okay, watched from so afar, was, but I was a big fan. But okay. I, I wasn't with the team that year. I started the next year. The oh, first, okay. the first uh, year we played the Islanders and we lost. Oh, uh, so 82-83 was your yeah, first Yeah, it was year. my first okay. year with the Oilers. Oh. Okay. Uh, the learning curve... I'll tell you, I was uh, very nervous coming into that team. I mean, it was the best team in the league at the time. Um, you know, these guys are all top-level players, and we were the talk of the league, actually, at the time. So, But because I had a little bit of hockey experience as a player, and I want to be real clear, Jason, I never played a game in the NHL. Yeah, yeah. I, I never coached a game in the NHL. Um, but... Um, you know, I just learned, like, uh, as a player going into a new team, you just you put your nose down, you go to work, you just keep your mouth shut and uh, do your job. And that's what I did. And eventually I kind of learned the earned the respect of the, of the group. We're all about the same age anyway. And, uh, and then after the first year, it was kind of history after that. So for, for anybody out there, because I like to have different guests on, because, hey, as you mentioned, hey, my goal is to play in the NHL too, but it didn't happen, right? There's there's all, there's all lots of other opportunities on how you can get involved and be in the National Hockey League, right? So today, if somebody wanted to be an equipment manager slash trainer, what, 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 do, what do you have to do? What kind of background and education do you need? Well, it's going to be very difficult to get a job in the NHL today without spending time in the minors, just like young players do. Okay. Uh, I would recommend anybody go to university, of course, to, to study athletic training, whether you're an equipment manager or a medical trainer. Actually, my background is in medical training. I, that's the degree I had. Okay. So I started as a medical trainer and then I switched to the, uh, the medical side. But, you know, you got to put your time in, you know, working in the, in, in junior hockey is, is usually a good start. And then from that, uh, you know, you just kind of work your way up just like the players do from junior to the minors. And then if you do a good job, Eventually, you're going to make it. So you come into the orders the first year in the NHL, and they go to the Stanley Cup final. You're like, well, oh, well, this is pretty fun. Like, obviously, it's devastating to lose in the Stanley Cup final, but then you ended up winning five of the next seven years, so you did all right. But uh, as you get to know the players, and you know, there, there's obviously a trust factor, right? And I, and I think like the evolution of players, right? And certain guys, like when you first started, there was no like nowadays when the players come off the ice, they're handing their gloves to the equipment guy, and he puts them on the heater, and it dries them right. There was none of that. So, what were you doing like early in the '80s to try to like? I remember I heard stories about Ray Bork going through like six pairs of gloves in a game because he just sweats so much. Right? Did you have like who is the one player that just not that they were picky, but just needed a lot of attention due to their equipment well you know that's kind of a a good question in a lot of ways because uh it wasn't until players some of our players like mark and well paul coffee is a good example of another guy who uh after after they left the term was uh high maintenance <laughs> and guys would call me and say well what do you do with this guy like these guys are high maintenance and i didn't understand what they were talking about because when i started we grew up together. We were teammates. We were friends. I mean, yes, they had some of these guys had real particular needs. Uh, Koff is a good example with his skates. 
there's tons of stories I could tell you about Paul. But 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 it was the reason that he had these the presented challenges to me in time as as far as that goes was because he was always trying to get better. He always tweaked his skates, his skate sharpening, his different blades. He he he. I I learned how to sharpen skates because of guys like Paul Coffey because they were always trying to get better. And so, so you didn't know how to sharpen skates before he came. Oh well, yeah. Yeah, oh, I had okay. I had a good fundamental. Oh, okay. of course I did, or else I wouldn't. You know, I mean, but I had, you sharpened coffee like he wanted a different sharpen than Gretzky or Messier or others. He, 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 exactly. Every yeah. player has their own preferences, and you uh, back in those days, I will say that uh, you know, I mean, training staff were part of the team back then, and, and I suppose it is like that. But there's it's 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 just different. It was a closer knit group of guys, and. Um, you know, so every guy had his own kind of preferences, uh, whether it was Mark Messier. He, he had a certain way that he liked the skates done. or Wayne was very easy to work with, but but Paul really pushed the envelope in just trying to get better. So, yeah, you, you, you learn. You have 23 players. You learn how, how each guy, what they need, and and uh, you, you're just there to sort of help them do what they need. Barry Stafford joins us uh, 28 years in the Orders organization uh, on the bench, then spent another 10 years uh, working in, in alumni and actually uh, w- was a liaison helping uh, design uh, all the dress rooms and training rooms at, at the new facility at uh, Rogers uh, Place. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, you were part of Canada Cups. Uh, you were part of uh, the World Cup, uh, World Championships. Uh, you know, you got to be on the bench. And the thing is, like, you got to be in, like, the best seat in the house. You're right on the bench, right? So you're hearing the guy, and obviously you become part of the team. So when you're not playing, I'm sure it's probably nerve-wracking, right? It's a tight game. The players are probably more relaxed than anybody else because they're playing. You're standing back there and like, oh, my God, like I can't do anything. I really want us to win. And you, know, and you also play, we're in the 80s, uh, Barry, where there's a lot of tilts. Right, like it was a little bit of a different game, right? The Calgary Edmonton rivalry was obvious. Like, um, can you tell me? Like, I've heard versions of the Dave Brown story with his jersey and like getting Vaseline. All was it? Was he? Was it sprayed on? And like, what did you do for that? You know, that is a hell of a story. And now you you, you start getting me thinking about. Uh, I was a bit of a shit disturber as a player, so I always had an affiliation with the with the tough guys. Like, just I kind of knew. Not that I. I mean, it's all relative, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, you're not saying you're Dave's no, tough, no, but no, you, no, you appreciated what he did. Not at all. No, no, I'd have got the shit kicked out of me many times. But uh, I'll tell you what. That story in itself it stands out in my in my mind. Even to this day, it brings back unbelievable memories because I remember. Uh, Dave Brown came to our team, uh, and he hadn't really been playing a lot. I think he, I, I'm not sure if it was Philly he came. I can't yeah. remember. But anyway, he came to our team, and, uh, we, we, we knew the kind of player that he was. And, uh, the very, the very first, I think it was the first or the second game was that game that Stewie Grimson was playing for the Flames, and he was a rookie as well at the time. Yeah. And, uh, so they got in a tilt quite early, and, um, Stu is a great man, and he, he is to this day a good guy, and he, uh, very honorable person, tough guy, knew his role. But he got he got a bit of the upper hand in the scrap. It was right right beside me, actually, right right by the blue line. And uh, he just he stood up and he put his hand in the air, not to to uh, signify victory. He was just happy he got out of it alive, literally. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Brownie wasn't too happy. He goes to the penalty box and didn't say a word, not one word to anybody. Comes off, finished the game, didn't say a word to anybody. And and we kind of knew that shit was going to hit the fan. Uh, it was either the next day or two days later, we we're in Calgary in the Saddle Dome. And there was lots of hype. And Brownie was just in a whole different uh, mindset. So we as training staff, we're friends with the um, Eskimos, Dwayne Mandrusiak. Yeah. 
And the Eskimos had all these tricks and that, that we talked to quite a bit about certain advantages. Back then, there was no rules on standardization. Yeah, like, like spraying could, the jerseys on oh guys God. so you couldn't hold the defensive linemen and well, stuff you, like yeah, that. Yeah, and you think about what Marty did with his sweater. And every every tough guy had their own deal. Tearaways, they had Velcro, they had... So we were trying to think. Brownie was saying to him, well, I... I I need to get something where he can't get a hold of my, my arm because, you know, typically they would, they would reach out and grab. So we called Dwayne up because Kenny Lowe had a background in football. Kenny yeah. and Dwayne. So what we did was we, uh, we took his shoulder pads and we sprayed them with glue. We put his sweater on. That's what they do in the NFL. Put the sweater on so that the, the sweater actually, people today call them jerseys, but the sweater, the jersey. So it was stuck to the shoulder pad from the inside. Then I altered so so there was no movement between the shoulder pad yeah. and the sweater. Okay. Then I took by hand, we didn't have a sewing machine at the time or whatever. I split the seam, pulled that pulled that sweater tight 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 to his arm and sewed it so that the sweater was skin tight and it it so was So did all, you sew it when was it on him when yeah, you're doing this? Yeah. Okay. So I I I ha, we had so I could measure it and I had yeah. it all done. And then uh then we sprayed it with silicone. So <laughs> So and, and needless to say, we put a lot of time and effort into it, and I was almost embarrassed. Well, I was embarrassed. When he went out on the ice for warm-up, it looked like, and no disrespect, but it looked like he had polio. He had, because one of his arms was tight, 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 skinny little arm, and then the other arm was normal. Well, I, all the work we did, Jason, I'll tell you, the first time those two guys were on the ice together. Oh, I remember the fight. It didn't oh. matter what I did to his sweater, what we did to his sweater. It was uh, probably one of the most one-sided scraps I ever remember seeing yeah. and hearing. If you look at the corner where the where the uh, where the fight took place, there not a pin was. You could hear a pin drop. It was completely silent in the whole building. Those two guys squared off, puck dropped, and I'm telling you, it made me sick to my stomach. And you know what? Grimson went down, went to the penalty box. Dave Dave went to the penalty box. That was the end of it. You know, I, Stu was out for. Months, I think. Yeah. And Marty was very opposite. Marty wanted you to make loose. his sleeves super loose. So if a guy grabbed onto it, he could still throw a punch because he'd have like an extra six, eight, 18 inches sometimes. Right. Marty was completely different, right? He would actually try and get out of his sweater too. So <laughs> Marty, Marty had a big, like a, it was big, like a sail. And then it, it didn't take long. I think Rob Ray was doing that yeah. stuff. The guys in Toronto, they, 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 uh, yeah. they, they finally had to clamp down on it. Ty Domi, all those guys. Everyone had their own little trick. What about Semenko? Did he have any? <sighs> Semenko didn't need nothing. <laughs> there was no, there was no word of no, no. He he was. Now, did Dave ever play a prank on you? Uh no, I I don't. They, no, not on me. He, you, you know, like I used to say, the trainers are like the Red Cross, right? We're pretty neutral in in every situation. <laughs> so. Uh, but Sam, no, Sammy was, uh, you know, as, as we know Sammy, and God love the guy, he's, uh, you know, dearly missed even to this day, but uh, one of the nicest gentlemen you'll yes. ever meet, as you know, but I'll tell you what, he, that guy, people forget he was a menace, man. And, uh-huh. he, and he never had a temper, very seldom lost his temper, but he was just a methodical uh, person that really knew his job. Well, I can tell you, true story, um, Dave Semenko's still to this day, like I remember obviously growing up, you watched Dave Semenko, and... I remember my first time in the press box, and Dave Semenko walks by, and you're still like, 
He looks like he could crush you right now. And he hadn't played in men. He'd been retired by then for probably eight or nine years. And he was a huge, he had one of the biggest heads I'd ever seen yeah. him, the big hair. And, but he was, I got to know Dave very well. He's a super nice guy, very friendly, loved chirping guys, very witty. But he was one of the most intimidating human beings I've ever seen. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, in the dressing room, <clears throat> he, he it was completely opposite. He was the, the friendliest, easygoing, um, the nicest guy you'd ever meet. And one of the very few, I, I got a funny story I could tell you about, Dave. One of the very few people that could stand up to slats, like literally. Um, and, you know, Glenn was probably, uh, Glenn, Glenn could put the hammer down when things weren't going well. Here's his simple example of the kind of humor and and. and the wit of Dave Semenko. So one one game we were losing terribly, and uh, the boys were playing bad, and we we're down probably four or five goals. And Glenn came in, and he was he you know Glenn didn't uh, didn't matter who you were, if you weren't playing well, he was going up one side and down the other, including Wayne and Mark and the boys. Like you guys got to start scoring. You're getting paid to score. This not not a a word was said by anybody. Glenn turns around just before he hits the door in the coach's office. You hear, how many goals did you score in the NHL? <laughs> just like that. You know, the most intense moment. Yeah. And he would do that constantly. He was just uh, pretty special that way. Just to kind of lower the, because I'm sure the teammates love it. Just right? start laughing. Even uh, Slats even laugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the order's after a year in Wichita. So uh, you're like a young guy, uh, spends time in the minors, then comes up to the NHL, 82, 83. Uh, you lose in the Stanley Cup uh, final to the Islanders. Then, of course, uh, starts the string of five in seven five cups in seven years um glenn sather was uh was always an interesting character right uh he, he you know he loved the mind games i've heard lots of players talk about it you know he do different things uh to motivate and, and and stuff like that did did he ever did he ever impact the equipment guys at all or did you guys kind of you know slats was was someone who kind of maybe left you guys alone Okay, first of all, he uh, I was very lucky to, to be with a lot of competitive people over the course of my career, not only just with the Oilers team, but he Glenn Sather was the most competitive guy. Kevin Lowe probably right there, close behind him. Okay. Glenn didn't use to lose his temper like Kevin, but uh, <laughs> here's an example of did, did Glenn Sather ever interact with the training staff? Okay, so... Uh, Paul Coffey, I, I, I can't remember exactly what year, but it was it was a time when, when um, teams used to start paying attention to curves on the sticks. Right. Well, I knew every single player's stick. I knew wh- wh- which sticks were illegal and which weren't illegal. Well, Koff had this idea that he, he always had to have – he had an illegal stick. And uh, it, we hadn't got to the point where we figured out how to, how to deal with it. But, you know, there was a stick measure, but there was a two-minute penalty as well, right? Mm-hmm. Paul Coffey gets a penalty in the last minute of the game, and uh, I think we were up by a goal, so we won the game. But, uh, you know, he's in the penalty box for an illegal stick. I'm standing on the bench thinking, you know, Slatsy's going to hold me responsible. Even though the, I know every guy's got it, who's got an illegal stick and who doesn't. I'm not telling Paul Coffey he can't have an illegal stick. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's in the penalty box and I'm sitting there. I got my fingers crossed. I'm going, shit, I just hope to hell we don't, we don't tie this game or lose this game. Game's over. Typically, the, the uh, coaches go off the, uh, off the bench first. Then the players and the trainers come in last. So... I'm walking past. We won the game. I'm walking past my office, and I look in my office. I had a desk and a chair, a stick rack. Glenn Sather is standing on my desk 
writing with a felt pen onto the onto the wall, the drywall. Any player that gets caught with an illegal stick, the trainer will be fined five thousand dollars. <laughs> And I'm standing there, like, Peter Miller was my partner at the time. We're looking at him going, what the hell is he doing? The trainer will be fined $5,000. And so, I don't know, I was just beside myself. So when he left the room, I got all the players to come in. They're laughing their asses off, right? Because, you know. Yeah, they think it's funny. They're not getting they, fined. They don't give a shit, right? So um, when it was all said and done, I mean, I was quite upset about it. And I Anyway, I waited till all the players left. Glenn was the last guy in the room, I, you know. I had to put on my bulletproof vest, open the coach's office and go, hey, like, he goes, ah, don't worry about it. I was just trying to get their attention. (laughs) Now, there's a story. uh, I can't remember if it was playoff game or not, but um, Slats was all, you know, there's there's, there's always been the story that supposedly in the playoffs once in Edmonton, he moved the benches a, a little bit closer. But the uh, I guess there's two I want to ask you about because uh, I always like to get to the truth of the certain stories. So let's start with the one in 87. Did you guys hide the Stanley Cup? Well, that's one way to put it. Did we hide it? Um, I'd have to say that that was also Mr. Sather's idea. Um, Mike Keenan, who was the coach of the uh, Philadelphia Flyers and our, our nemesis at the time, not a very liked person by anybody on our team, uh, my, my colleague, my buddy Sparky, um, who was looking after the visitors, he had heard, uh, the day before the seventh game. So it was a practice day. Yeah. This is the Stanley Cup final, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Stanley Cup final, getting ready for the seventh game. Uh, Sparky had overheard Mike Keenan talk to, uh, one of the staff members that they wanted to get the Stanley Cup and give his team some inspiration and get it in their dressing room before the game. Well, Sparky heard about this and he didn't really agree with it. He didn't really like it. So, he sort of mentioned it to Glenn, and uh, Slatsy said, well, you better hide that cup. So, Oh, Sparky doesn't have the cup. The cup disappeared. He, uh, he knew where it was kept. He knew he had locked the, like, the, the Stanley Cup, uh, or sorry, the, the, the NHL staff member kind of entrusted the home team to lock it away. So, so, so Sparky had, knew exactly where it was. He had it locked now, away. Now, Pritchard wasn't the keeper no, of the cup. No, no, that was, was before, that was before okay. Phil, yeah. Okay. There was just one guy, and uh, he was a nice gentleman, friendly guy. That was his only job. So Sparky hid the cup. He took it out of the, 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 the spot that it was supposed to be locked away. And then uh, when, the, when the gentleman came to get the cup on game day, you know, to shine it up, all of a sudden it mysteriously disappeared. And this poor guy was very, very nervous. And uh, so, like I said to you before, I to this day, even I remember that's the first time I think I honestly looked a guy right in the eye and just lied to his face. And I tell you, I was I felt so bad because he was just sweating bullets. And it wasn't until probably four o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the afternoon that Sparky kind of pulled it out because we didn't want Mike Keenan to get a hold of the cup. So, right, yeah, it was. Uh, that was just one of the many times that Glenn sort of stirred it up. And uh, in L.A., um, like he got Sparky to do a few things. Yeah, well, he behind the scenes, it was funny because it was a playoff game in L.A. And um, it was a big game. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where in the series we were, but uh, Glenn wanted to stir things up a bit. So uh, they, back in those days, he used to have microphone cords, and the microphone cord just happened to go by uh, the, the the area in our bench Uh and then onto the ice where the lady would come out and sing the anthem. Well, she uh, just as she was starting to sing the American anthem, uh, Sparky cut the cord. 
and silence in the building. And you can just imagine the poor lady. It was very embarrassing for her and the whole building. Nobody knew what to do, right? And uh, sure as shit, we, we got everybody's attention. We kind of threw them off a bit. Did you win the game? Uh, I can't remember. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So you uh, obviously, you know, you're part of some pretty good uh, orders teams winning the Stanley Cup. It's a big deal. But uh, the Canada Cup, which eventually evolved into the World Cup, and then obviously then players got to go to the Olympics, and, and you were part of the 2002. You were on the bench of the 2002 uh, Olympics. That's the Mary Lemieux, yeah. Joe Sackick, one of the greatest goals ever when you think about big goals. Obviously, Lemieux and Gretzky in 87, pretty big goal, 91. Um you know, you look at those, and how different was that for you? Because you got to know all your individual players quite well. But then when you go as a, as equipment guy and you have like all the best of the best players for Canada on a team, how, how long does it take to get to know the nuances of those players? Well, I'll tell you, it, you know, people have asked me what it was like working with some of those guys. And I'll tell you what, it was very easy. Um, you know, when you talk about checking your ego at the door, uh, other than, I would say, the 84 Canada Cup, and that's another story we'll get to with the Islanders. That, yeah, was, yeah. that was a different story. But generally, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be on a winning team with the with the Oilers. And Glenn, because the winning the, the, the Oilers had won, Glenn Sather was the boss, They the, the league typically used to ask the winning team to look after their staff. So he, I would get invited to come, and uh, they picked the coaches. If you think about the 80, 84 Cup, we had seven Oilers on that team. Yeah. On that 84, you know, that was a pretty big deal. But... Uh, you know, I had a chance to, you know, w- work with some of the best players. And, you know, typically, Joe Sackick, uh, think about Mary Lemieux, you know, the list goes on, all the all the greatest players of the time. They, they are all gentlemen, uh, every single one of them. I mean, it was just a pleasure to work with them. Uh, not demanding at all, just, uh, it was just a, a real pleasure to be, to watch those teams grow. And, and uh, it was a, just a group of leaders. How would you describe it, the difference for you being on the bench for a Stanley Cup winner compared to a Canada Cup or an Olympics? How different is it, if any? Uh, very, very, very similar. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, when you're representing your country, it's, it's, it, 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 it lifts everything to a whole different level. Um, but the intensity of the games, uh, the one thing I noticed about tournament play, like whether it was the Canada Cups or or Olympic Games or World Championships, is you know there there are never a series where there's a, a seven game series. You know you have to go through a preliminary round, yeah. Then you have to get into the to, to the next round, and then it's a single elimination. So there's there's a ton of pressure on every single game, uh, leading right up to the you know the semifinals and then the final game. But obviously, you know, representing your country. The coolest part is, um, well, we were in Salt Lake City and the, the, the amount of support that we got, uh, Team Canada was amazing. They always look after the players and the staff. But you guys, the walls were just filled with letters and posters and, uh, you know, fans would, would uh, put, just send so much stuff. Like our whole dressing room was just uh, filled with, support from around the world or mainly Canada and it was just amazing it's uh, so it did it did bump it up to a different level Barry Stafford uh, joins us on uh, who is it Wednesday spent 28 years in the orders organization as the uh had an equipment uh, trainer, and then, of course, I uh, worked for another 10 years in, in other various parts uh, off the ice uh, with the Orders organization. And one of those, for, for a few years, you were the liaison as they were building Rogers Place. You were kind of the head guy, because having been an equipment guy and a trainer, you kind of knew, hey, what if, if we're going to build a rink, you want to have as many of the best facilities as possible. 
right? And so you help design not only the dressing room, but all of the other rooms. Kind of tell me about that process. You know, Jason, I was so lucky because, uh, first of all, Kevin Lowe was my boss. I mean, Kevin and I were, had, had grown together and, uh, you know, he was the president of the team at the time. Patrick LaForge was the president of the business side, but I basically was working for Kevin Lowe. Um, and Kevin was very close to Daryl and I, I have to give most uh, of all the credit to Daryl Cates for the vision that he had because he wanted to have the best dressing room, locker room space in the world. No doubt. And, um, you know, I, there was a few times where I, I would spend time with Kevin. I didn't see him a lot. He basically gave me the autonomy to, uh, to travel around the league. Um, I'd been in the league for a long time, so I'd seen all the newest buildings. But, you know, it was funny because I'd be getting texts myself from Daryl Cates sending me uh, pictures of the new Barcelona arena. <laughs> and I'm saying to Kevin, I don't really want texts from Daryl Cates. Like, I don't want to get into that loop. But... Uh, you know, he all, Kevin always said to me, listen, we have the big guy on our side and, uh, he wants the best. And I was fortunate to work with the best architects in the world, basically, uh, who designed many NFL buildings. It was HOK was the architect. Um, we had a great project management company, Icon out of Denver, who, who's done many, many buildings in the, uh, around the world. Uh, PCL right here in Edmonton. We had the city of Edmonton. I mean, I was a very small cog, but I, I used to say that building had, uh, what, over a million square feet. And I was responsible for about 30,000 feet. But in the middle of that 30,000 feet, there was about, uh, I don't know, 1,200 feet that was pretty important. And that's the dressing room space. So it, it, was a, it was a lot of fun doing that. It's a great job. Well, we got a text uh, coming in from Ricky wondering, uh, did you interact much with the opposing team's training staff? And uh, was Bearcat Murray as ultra competitive it seemed from the outside? You know what? Behind the scenes during the regular season, the training staff are are very supportive of each other. Um, pretty pretty similar to the media. Media and training staff were about the same level. We're, we're all friends because we're all working behind the scenes, right? Um, but we we would help each other many times. If Calgary Flames came here, and by, by the way, Bearcat Murray was was a was a iconic figure in my mind. He was one of the greats and. Uh, you know, he grew up in Okotoks, Alberta, and I, I, I knew Bearcat for, as a young guy, but uh, so I had a lot of respect for Bearcat. And he was very competitive, just a great, great gentleman. But, uh, you know, he would, they would come in maybe behind the scenes. Everybody's going to forget something, Jason. We'd all take pride in our, in, and have an ego to say, oh, yeah, we're professionals. We never forget anything. Yeah. Always be careful of people that say always and never, right? <laughs> behind the scenes, somebody be knocking on my door. Hey, I, 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 I forgot. Jerome McGinley's sticks. You, can I can I borrow some sticks? Like when nobody's around, I said, "Well, they forgot a stick of a." Oh, that goal! I could tell you some funny stories. You wouldn't believe it. But so you'd get it. You'd get it. You'd get a knock on the door very quietly, and you know, hey, it takes a lot for a guy to come in and admit. Yeah. That he's, oh, hundred percent. So, so of course, I knew one day it's going to. I'm going to be that guy. Okay. So we were very welcoming in Edmonton. So I'd say, you know, when no one's around, I'd open the door, open the stick rack, and go go to work, man. Find out what you can. And uh, the same would happen to us, you know. Some you'd forget. I get some funny stories about. You know, what did you? What's the one thing you look back? Oh, I forgot this. What was it? Well, I'll tell you. I, I funny story. You know, before we flew, uh, uh, well, when we were flying commercial, we used to have to leave in early in the morning from the ramp. We'd get to the rink, pack equipment, going to Calgary. Say, as an example, at four o'clock in the morning, we'd be yeah. packing bags, yeah. pack the bags, get in the truck, off to the airport. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We used to look at each other and go, hey, if we forgot anything, who cares? We didn't need it, right? Yeah. Well, that only lasted until I forgot Billy Ranford's catching glove. I was the guy. <laughs> yeah. I was the guy oh. that did the goalies. Oh, that was wow. my job. So, yeah, yeah. hey, I packed goalies. I packed Billy Ranford's equipment for 10 years every game. We get to L.A., and it's it's right after an all-star game, and we're in a hunt. Teddy well, it's Green, in L.A., not yeah, even yeah, Calgary. We went to L.A. Okay. Teddy Green, which did cause some, some challenges. Teddy Green was the head coach, very, very intense head coach. We were in the, in the hunt just to make playoffs. And uh, in our practice rink, so it was the day before the game, we arrive in L.A., really quickly going to practice, opening the bags up. It's total chaos. Billy Ranford comes up to me very politely in the middle of chaos uh, Staffy, I, I can't find my catching glove. I go, listen, Bill, your gloves in your bag. Your gloves in your bag. I packed your stuff this morning. I always pack your stuff. Go back. I'm trying to organize the coaches. I got these 23 guys getting going. There's a bus ready to go. Five minutes later, Billy Ranford's sheepishly looking at me, going, Staffy, my catching mitt is not in my bag. Well, then I started getting worried. It's it's very intense. Like we had two, you know, two goalies, but. Back then, the goalies didn't bring extra equipment. Yeah. Like now, there's two sets, three sets of gear for everybody. Well, then I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. I go in his bag and sure as shit, there's no catching mitt. And I packed his bag, so I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. That's me. It's on me, right? So Kelly Rudy was the goalie. Peter Miller was my former partner. You might remember oh, Peter yeah. Miller. Yeah. Peter Miller was the head equipment manager. For the Kings. Uh, for the Kings at the practice rink at the time. This was earlier in the day. I phone Peter. I go, Peter, I need some help, buddy. Like, I forgot Billy Ranford's catching mitt. And so I knew Kelly Rudy as well. I said, who do you got there that's got a left-handed mitt? He says, well, Kelly Rudy. I said, okay, fine. So I said, Bill, because these goalies are very particular. Oh, and yeah. he's our starting goalie. Yeah, and it's yeah. a very, very serious game. Teddy Green, I didn't have the heart to tell Teddy Green. But uh, so I, Bill's pretty easy going. Guy I said, you know, I can get by practice today. But you got to have it here for, mor- for morning skate tomorrow. It's 4, it's four o'clock in the afternoon in L.A., and I need it there for the morning. So yeah, I can tell you there's some heat on. Billy got through practice. How'd you get the glove there? I had a shit ton of phone calls to make, man. And Sparky run into the airport late at night. We got it on a on a plane to L.A. Uh, one of our scouts, by chance, was coming in on an early flight. Sparky got it to him. He carried it in. 
came, got, got it uh, to the rink in the morning and everything went fine. But, but I was lucky there. There's a couple other times when, uh, oh man, I get some funny, funny stories about that, but it, it happens, you know. Barry Stafford, uh, joins us, uh, 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 came in in, uh, in, uh, 08 and 09, uh, 2010. You were there kind of at the start of the decade of darkness, unfortunately. Like you got to see the peak oh, of the orders and also at the bottom, like, and for somebody who'd been around all the winning, it must have been hard to see. Geez, like we're terrible right now. And maybe you don't ever want to admit you're terrible, but you kind of know you're terrible and you know, you're, you're finishing at the bottom. Um, I've always, I want to get your, somebody's version of the Pat Quinn story. And I don't, I can't remember if it was New York or what city it was in, but somehow the team forgot him at the airport. Like the bus took off without him and he ended up having to ride with the trainers and equipment guy. Is this true? That's so true. Um, typically what happens when we land in a city, uh, um, or sorry, when we take off, um, we we would land. It's a it's an FBO, so it's not the main airport terminal, and and we did. I I believe yeah, we landed uh, late at night, and um, so Pat got off the uh, off the bus, or he he got off the plane. Yes, yeah, so we were landing. He got off the plane, and he had guests, uh, family members, or somebody off to the side. He had a little bit of business. Well, there's typically a bus or two buses waiting. There's a team services gentleman at the time that like uh, that looks after all the players and makes sure that the players and the staff. Uh, other than the trainers, get on the bus, and then they take the bus off, go to the hotel. Well, so and you guys go directly to yeah, the rink. With yeah. The staff. So as the training staff is waiting with the uh, the gentlemen from the airlines that are unloading our equipment, they unload our equipment, throw it into the truck. When the truck is loaded, which is totally independent of the bus, the bus takes off. Uh, we we're independent. They're going to the hotel. We're going to the rink to unpack. That's our job. So. Uh, the bus left. We're doing our thing. We got our noses down. We're loading the truck, getting everything ready. And we turn around and there's Pat Quinn standing right beside the truck and there's no bus. And we're in the middle of nowhere, man. And it's probably two o'clock in the morning. Uh, not ideal when the head coach is left behind. So, uh, I can't remember the exact, the, the person that was our team services. That's their job, but it was pretty embarrassing for them. And, you know, I will say that, uh, Pat Quinn was a gentleman, uh, one of the best coaches we had That's here. That's some and, really uh, funny lines, man. And uh, just, uh, you know, I, I said to him, well, listen, you're, you're, you're one of the few head coaches in the NHL that gets the honor of riding in the front seat of an equipment truck <laughs> with the trainers which had pizza and probably a few beers. Yeah, well, that's what I heard. There was a beer, so that he was just like, "Oh, I got a beer." Okay, there, there was okay. always a, you know, I hate to say it, but there was always a cold beer in the in the truck for us. But uh, yeah, so Pat took it all in stride, and that's when I, I mentioned to you a little earlier one of the great lines, and he he was awesome for the lines. He he would say to me, "Barry, this isn't your uh, fault, but it's your problem. Figure it out." You know, like <laughs> typical uh, Pat. I love Pat Quinn. God rest his soul. Yeah, he he had some really funny lines, man. A lot of beefcake in this photo, and oh, geez, he like the orders were terrible. But Pat Quinn's press conferences those years, those are must listen. Like they were, uh, most of the media guys stayed around just listen to Pat because yeah. he had some funny uh, lines throughout it. Um, so you, when you decided to to end your time, uh, twenty eight years, was it difficult or was it the right time for you to get out? And because you didn't get out of the organization, obviously you moved into to different area in the organization. Or was it difficult to to move away from that? Well, you know, it's funny because at the time that it happened, it really wasn't my choice. Uh, there was a big uh, turnover in our executive. Uh, Kevin had had become the president. Steve Tambellini came in. Um, the team was was doing very poorly, 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly common in other business, but in our business, it was no different. They wanted to shake things up. They wanted some younger guys, which was quite, uh, I guess it was quite logical at the time for them. And, uh, just to clear things up back then, it was, it was internally, it was quite a, a shuffle. You know, they fired the trainers, they said, and, uh, you know, what are they going to do? Fire Joy Moss next. But it wasn't really like that behind the scenes. Like right from the start, they said, look, we have a contract. Uh, we have a different job for you. Everything is going to be fine. And, uh, you know, it, it, it worked out very, very well for me. So it wasn't my choice, but I'll tell you, uh, it gave me 10 years and, uh, uh, I had some really good uh, jobs after that, and I was at the time I'd, I'd been involved in a couple of renovations in our in our building, but also I helped to renovate the Oklahoma City farm team. Uh, you know, there's a couple million dollar renovations you had to work at yeah. uh, at that, and then when they bought the Bakersfield team, I did the same thing. I was kind of uh, the de facto uh, uh, design person for that stuff, and then it set me up for the for the large uh, when we did the you know the the new building too. So. You know, it was, it was, I was ready to leave, Jason. You, you hit the, the nail on the head. It was very challenging for us, uh, to be around the team. And, you know, our job is to, you know, uh, solve problems, not create them. And you, you know, as a training staff member, you have to be upbeat every day. Like, you know, that's your job. And, uh, it was very, very challenging because we weren't winning and it was tough not to win. It was, those were the dog years, the dark years, man. So, uh, I was ready for a change, and uh, it was a great opportunity for me, and I, I, th I thank Kevin right at the time for that. So, uh, you know. Now, um, you, of course, have been in, involved in a lot of, you know, the, a lot of different charity ones. Uh, Toast to the Town is something that you're pretty heavily involved in. Tell us about it. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, we just had a press conference in the um, Oilers Hall of Fame. Um, thank you to Tim Shipton and the Oilers organization, and, and of course, Myrna uh, Con, who, who is the, uh, exec director of the, uh, Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation, who are big supporters of ours. Um, last year we did Kevin Lowe, uh, we honored Kevin Lowe as the toast of the town and it went very, very well. Uh, this year our toast of the town is in, um, uh, on April the 20th at the River Cree and we're honoring the great Cal Nichols. And I'll tell you, it's been, uh, you know, the, the, the premise of the toast of the town is to two things. I guess the mission is to our, our, our byline is what we do today saves lives tomorrow. Uh, I'm a very fortunate guy, Jason. Uh, I had a, a bit of a boat of cancer many uh, 12 years ago. I have mm -hmm. myeloma and, uh, I'm a lucky guy because my body responded. I'm a very healthy person. And, uh, you know, while I'm healthy and while I'm doing what I'm doing, I, I our mission, my, my co-chair, uh, Brian Anstice is, is, is struggling right now. He's got a bit of a, rough goal going on but our goal was to find a cure for this thing and so we put our noses down we we, we got together with a great group of people through the cure cancer foundation and um um you know the, the i guess the two things about the toast of town number one we wanted to honor an outstanding edmontonian for their philanthropy for all the great things they've done to the community kevin Lowe was a great example cal nichols of course is the other example but secondly we want to recognize that little cross cancer hospital and all the great doctors, researchers and, and the work that they do. And, uh, especially for blood cancers, we're, uh, we're pushing hard. Um, it's an Alberta based, uh, group. The money stays in Alberta. We're helping Albertans. We, we're using, uh, it's a collaborative effort between the, uh, Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation, of course, which includes Ben Stelter and, and the Stelter Foundation, the Chief Mauji and that group. So we're, we're proud to be part of that as well. And, uh, of course, the Oilers have been very supportive, uh, the Cure Cancer Foundation, and of course, uh, 
uh, the Alberta Cancer Foundation is is a big part of that collaborative team, along with Dave Dyer and the Cross Hospital. So it's a great team. It's a great cause. And it's just been a, a wonderful experience for me uh, to be part of such a great group. And uh, one thing uh, that you do, a great way to raise money is... Um you do and go uh, as a guest speaker. You don't take any of the money. You take it. They you offer them a donation to your toast of the town to the foundation, and uh, you go into a lot of different companies. Uh, you know, a sales package or whatever, and you do kind of like a, um, like a speech is probably the wrong word. You just go in there and tell some stories. Correct. Well, you know, it's interesting. We're we're all volunteers. I mean, look at yourself. I I, I can't. You know. All the different work that you've done. I don't think you've ever got enough credit for the volunteer work that you've done. It's amazing all the things that you, you've, you've done. And we're, we're just proud to be able to help. And we're always looking like everybody as a philanthropist, uh, fundraising. We're always trying to do things that we can help. And, um, you know, I came across this, uh, uh, I guess it's, it's a keynote presentation called winning in the game of life. And, uh, um, I, I'm very passionate about, uh, trying to help people that are living with cancer and, uh, this little, it's little life lessons that I learned and I, I, I try and apply them to, to people that have gone through some difficult times in the hospital with, through cancer or through business or whatever. But, uh, it's turned out that, uh, yeah, I, we're all volunteers. Nobody accepts anything, uh, uh, except for maybe a donation. So I've been very fortunate to do two or three and they've gone over very well. And, you know, we, we've raised, uh, you know, a little bit of money because of that. So how can uh, people, if they want you to come speak, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I guess they can, you know, um, they can email me or, or call me directly or go through the the Cure Cancer Foundation website or the Toast of the Town website. It'd be very easy to get a hold of me. But Toast of the Town website. Yeah, yeah that would be, be the best probably. Yeah, that'd, be, uh, that'd probably be the uh, easiest one to uh, to get to. And so if you want uh, Barry to come out and, uh, and speak to your group about the what, – what's, uh, what's your keynote speaker about again? Well, the, the presentation is called Winning in the Great Game of Life. And uh, it's based on the, I guess, the signature line that we have for our, our mission in the Toast of the Town, which is what you do today saves lives tomorrow. And uh, it's lessons that I've learned and can apply very easily in business and life. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a combination of uh, motivational, inspirational, educational, and it's just a lot of fun. I love it. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Who Is It Wednesday. We really appreciate it. Just uh, Google Toast of the Town. The website's toastofthetownccf.com. We really appreciate you coming in and uh, continued success and uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Yeah, thank you very much and uh, Merry Christmas to all you guys as well.